This podcast is presented by the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. Journey through Virginia's rich history and discover hidden treasures. You can learn more at virginiahistory.org. Welcome back to How We Got Here. I'm your host, Rachel DePompa, an investigative reporter with the NBC affiliate WWBT in Richmond. If you are new to How We Got Here, start with episode one and binge. This week, we are turning back the clock on July 1st through July 7th. We're going to pick up right where we left off in episode four, the end of the Seven Days Battles. The Union Army, led by George B. McClellan, was retreating after the devastation at Gaines's Mill. And the Confederate Army, led by Robert E. Lee, was right on their heels. We find ourselves in Henrico County, southeast of Richmond, as the sun rises on the first day of July. Malvern Hill is July 1st, 1862. We've got the Federals backed up to the James River, but they've selected a very strong position. When we say Malvern Hill, if you haven't been out there, you might be imagining a, a long slope that the Confederates are going to have to ascend to give the Federals. That's not the case. Think of a plateau with a hillside on each, each side and really one avenue of approach right up the gut. So you can put cannon right across that plateau and anybody that wants to get at you has to come right into those guns. We cannot get enough of historian Mike Gorman. We keep bringing him back because he's such a fantastic storyteller. We recorded this interview outside, near the fields where the Seven Days Battles erupted. July 1st, 1862, Robert E. Lee was focused on destroying McClellan and his army, what would have been a crushing blow to the Union. Now, what Lee had in his mind, he is upset, by the way, after, after Glendale. That's one of the final battles we told you about last week in Episode 4. One of the Confederate generals, D.H. Hill, went up to General Lee and asked him, uh, do you think McClellan is going to get away? And Lee turned on him and snapped. He said, yes, he will get away because I can't get my orders carried out. And that shows you where he is. Who's he talking about there? <laughs> Jackson. Stonewall Jackson had not performed the way Lee needed him to in the days prior. But after the angry outburst, Lee's attention turns to the daunting task ahead of him at Malvern Hill. His idea for the next day involved a fairly elaborate plan again that was gonna converge artillery fire on the Union gun line. So Lee wanted to establish these gun parks that would then break up the Union line. And when that had been successful, then he wanted to launch an infantry attack. Basically a collection of artillery to focus the firepower on a specific spot. Simple enough, right? But it's 1862. And communicating on a battlefield wasn't as easy as it would be today. I'm paraphrasing here, but basically orders went out that said just that, and that General Armistead, who is in best position to observe the effect of the fire, will, when he thinks it's time, advance with a yell. Remember that name, Armistead. It'll come back later on. And the orders to the other commanders were do likewise. So authority for launching this attack falls on the shoulders of a brigadier general who's never been in serious combat. Supposed to look out and judge when the artillery has taken effect and then advance with a yell. Are you gonna be able to hear that in a battle? Come on. But Mike Gorman says 
there was a problem, and it had nothing to do with the rebel yell. Remember Lee's gun parks, that he wanted to focus fire on a specific spot? Instead of unleashing all the artillery at once, the Army's head of artillery was letting them go one battery at a time. A battery is a smaller version of a gun park, but not what Lee had in mind. So you can imagine the ridiculous scene of there are 40 Union gun up there, and here comes one battery into a field. Every one of those 40 guns is now making it their personal mission to destroy that Confederate battery, which they do. So these gun parks that Lee wanted to establish never got off the ground. There are probably never more than two or three Confederate guns firing at any given time. The problem is there were supposed to be 50. It's pretty obvious this plan isn't going to work. So what does Robert E. Lee do? Well, he cancels the plan and sends out orders saying so. He rides about two miles away to try to find a way to flank McClellan and his army. But guess what? Problem. All the commanders on the field knew that this had been canceled. One of them had gotten lost and wasn't on the field to see this. His name was Magruder. Oh, Magruder, I think you can see where this is going. And he looks out and he sees what he thinks to mean, I've arrived just in the nick of time. You can see some Confederate guns firing. Okay, you can actually look up on the hill and you can see Union soldiers falling back a little bit. And you can see Confederates in the field and they seem to be yelling. And so he sends a letter to General Lee says, I've arrived on the field, Armistead is advancing. He was not advancing. Magruder just thought so. Now, when Lee got this, imagine the weirdness. What? Armistead is advancing? Are you serious? So he writes back, remember, he's not even on the field now. He writes back, support Armistead. And so all of a sudden now, Lee, about two miles away, starts to hear the sounds of real battle erupting from Malvern Hill and rides back to find Magruder's men in the field actively assaulting other Confederate divisions joining him to support him and a battle has literally started out of his control and at this point he has no choice but to order everybody into the pool we're going to try to do something remember the layout of the battlefield at Malvern Hill the Confederates were in a vulnerable position here and the Union was just taking advantage of it so the men that are attacking there at, at Malvern Hill are just getting mowed down by by cannon and small arms fire. And you can just imagine the horror as they're moving forward and seeing you know, their men just fall down in ranks. They're actually moving forward to a low spot where they're gonna throw themselves on the ground and sleep there for the rest of the night, but they're completely beaten. It was a resounding victory for the Federals. And you can imagine too, meeting with other generals that night and slapping each other on the back and being like, we've got them, we've got them. And tomorrow we're gonna go forward and we're gonna win this war. But as we all know, the Civil War did not end in July of 1862. And there's a reason why. McClellan orders them to fall back. But unlike McClellan's decision to not go after Richmond when it was exposed earlier that week, he thought he had a reason to fall back this time. McClellan would have said though, no, this is absolutely the right thing to do because if Lee could attack me in that crazy manner here across this ground, then that's more proof. We didn't see AP Hill today. Where is he? He's probably creeping around my flank right now. And if we don't move tomorrow, we'll be destroyed. But that wasn't true. A.P. Hill was in the reserves that day. And because of McClellan's decision, the Union was forfeiting an incredible opportunity. Imagine those federal forces marching off a victorious field after winning. That must have just been horribly demoralizing. One of the, one of the Union commanders, uh, General Kearney, wrote that, that this order could only be motivated by cowardice or treason. But it really shows you some of the feeling that was in the Army at the time. 
McClellan brought his Army of the Potomac back to Harrison's Landing, which is modern-day Berkeley Plantation in Charles City County, the northern bank of the James River. The Confederates will then basically keep him bottled up there in that neck until Lee decides to, uh, to get aggressive again, and that'll launch the Second Manassas Campaign. It's worth noting that four months after Malvern Hill, President Abraham Lincoln removed George B. McClellan from commanding the Army of the Potomac. And a year to the day after Malvern Hill, July 1st, 1863, the Battle of Gettysburg. If we think back to episode four, the new general of the Confederate Army, Robert E. Lee, took a huge gamble, leaving the door to Richmond swinging open. But the Union did not take advantage, moving south instead to the safety of the James River. July 1st, 1862, the end of the Seven Days Battles, all bloody affairs, right on Richmond's doorstep. The 1860s were a time of political tension and war, and we talk about soldiers on both sides a lot, but we rarely hear from the people who did not fight, mostly the women left behind at home. But on July 5th, 1861, a group of women in Rockingham County, Virginia, wanted their voices heard. A newspaper there at the time, the Rockingham Register, called them proud spirited ladies who told the paper they had, quote, formed a resolution to live and die old maids unless our brave volunteer boys returned again. We have also pledged ourselves to take care of the few cowards that are still left behind. This is a bold statement for women in the 1860s, a protest of sorts more than 50 years before women got the right to vote. It's all because their, quote, brave volunteer boys were off to war, fighting for the Confederacy because just two months earlier, the Ordinance of Secession in Virginia was ratified. In February of 1861, male voters in Rockingham County elected three men to the Virginia Convention and all three opposed seceding from the Union. In April of that year, the convention voted 88 to 45 against secession. Then, Fort Sumter happened. Three days later, President Abraham Lincoln called for some 70,000 volunteer troops to defeat the rebels, the final stir that caused the cauldron of war to boil, the beginning of the Civil War. Two days after Lincoln's call for troops, the Virginia delegates reconvened. It had been less than two weeks since their 88 to 45 vote against secession. But this time, the votes flipped. The majority wanted out of the union, and citizens got the chance to decide for themselves by voting on the ordinance of secession that May. The ordinance was ratified, and the vote count in Rockingham County alone was astounding. County voters remember at this time they were all white men, voted to ratify the ordinance by a vote of 3,012 to 22. For the women in the county, it became Civil War whiplash. The men these spirited ladies loved were heading off to war, wearing gray, when just three and a half months earlier, it appeared they would don the Union's navy blue. 
we can assume many of those spouses became widows. But based on the bold statement to the local newspaper on July 5, 1861, we can be sure women in the Dry River District of Rockingham County in the Shenandoah Valley stuck to their resolution, living out their days proud of the men who never came home. Sometimes we need to go way back into history for something as simple as the name Virginia and where it came from. For that, we head back 435 years. It was July 4th, 1584. Two ships felt the sand underneath their vessels. That was likely what we now know as the Outer Banks of North Carolina. These adventurers, Philip Armadas and Arthur Barlow, sailed under the sponsorship of Sir Walter Raleigh, a man very close to Queen Elizabeth at the time. The Queen feared war with Spain and knew of their wealth from Central and South America. She wanted to explore the coast of the New World for whatever riches it could offer. Once they arrived, the men named the entire region Virginia in honor of Queen Elizabeth I, who was known as the Virgin Queen. So even though we're no longer under British rule and haven't been for centuries, the mere name of a place where we live is paying homage to the throne across the Atlantic, where ironically enough, another Elizabeth is seated as queen, second of her name, the mother of Charles. I'm going a little Game of Thrones here. You get it. The voyage that landed in the New World on July 4, 1584, helped continue exploration in the area, eventually leading to the Roanoke Colony, now commonly known as the Lost Colony. The cryptic word Croatoan carved into wood was all that was left behind of those who were once there. The fate of those colonists remains a mystery. Back in episode four, we told you about Virginia declaring itself an independent commonwealth on June 29, 1776. Well, just six days later, that same year, July 5, 1776, the Virginia Convention adopted a state seal. And what they came up with 243 years ago is almost identical to what is used today, known as the Great Seal of Virginia. Think about the state flag or the logo that's usually on the podium when the governor is speaking. That's where the seal is used. We're going to try to visualize this for you. The theme is from ancient Roman mythology, emphasizing the importance of civic virtue. It features the Roman goddess of virtue, representing the genius of the commonwealth. She is dressed as an Amazon warrior, a sheath sword in one hand and a spear in the other. Her left foot is on top of the figure of a tyrant lying on the ground who carries a broken chain in one hand and a scourge or a whip in the other. His fallen crown nearby, implying that the struggle has ended in complete victory. The outside of this seal is bordered with the plant known as the Virginia creeper. Above the figures is the word Virginia, 
And below is the state motto, Six Semper Tyrannus, or thus always, to tyrants. But the state seal is not without controversy, mostly because the Roman goddess of virtue has one of her breasts exposed. Back in 2010, Virginia Attorney General Ken Cuccinelli gave out lapel pens to his staff that featured the goddess of virtue with her entire chest covered by a plate of armor. He was ridiculed for the more modest version. Eventually, he said he would stop using the pen with a seal that he said was historic. Back to the beginnings of the seal. It was designed by George Wythe, who was part of a committee with George Mason, Richard Henry Lee, and Robert Carter Nicholas. But here's something you might not know. There's actually a reverse side of this seal. And that side has three Roman goddesses. Liberty holds a wand, signifying power. The goddess of eternity holds a globe and phoenix for the rebirth of the earth. And the goddess of agriculture holds a cornucopia and a stalk of wheat, signifying the fruitfulness of the land. When it was originally designed, it had a phrase, God has given us this ease. That was in Latin at the top. But in 1779, in the midst of the Revolutionary War, the General Assembly ordered the phrase to be changed to the Latin word meaning by preserving. And it's easy to understand why. They were about four years into a war that would last another four years until 1783. The Great Seal is imprinted on two metallic discs, both exactly two and a quarter inches in diameter. And the only official model for flag makers hangs in the office of the Secretary of the Commonwealth, the person known as the Keeper of the Seals, an image that's represented Virginia for more than two centuries. If you thought we were going to do a whole episode on the week of July 1st without mentioning the nation's birthday on July 4th, think again. But this won't be a segment on grilling and fireworks. July 4th was a deadly day for former U.S. presidents, including three of the first five elected to office. Take a trip west on Interstate 64 from Richmond. Just before you get to Charlottesville, you'll see signs for Thomas Jefferson's Monticello. It was at his iconic home where on July 4, 1826, the founding father died at the age of 83. There's a lot going on in Jefferson's final days. He had, for the most part, been very healthy through his older years. He was known for, you know, continuing to be out and about around the plantation on horseback. That's Steve Light. He's the manager of house tours at Monticello. He's been there for more than five years, and he's the one teaching the interpreters who give tours to the public. He brings us this incredible glimpse into the final days of Jefferson. In 1825, he was severely ill for a time. And in June of 1826, his strength really begins to fail him. And he's, from that point on, really kind of remained bedridden for those last few weeks of his life. Known for his intellect and wit, 
It seems that even though Jefferson's body was failing him, his mind never faltered. One of his grandsons, uh, Thomas Jefferson Randolph, talks about his mind remaining very sharp, though. He says his mind was always clear. It never wandered. And during those final days, there were few visitors apart from family. One of them was Henry Lee from another famous Virginia family who was, who was visiting Monticello because he was working on editing his father's book about the revolution. Though the family tried to keep Henry Lee from seeing Jefferson because his health was so poor, Jefferson insisted on letting him in. And Henry Lee leaves us this account about Jefferson, and this is in late June, and he says, quote, uh, he alluded to the probability of death as a man would the prospect of being caught in a passing shower. So Jefferson's mind is pretty clear, and he's, he's clearly kind of at this point in his life not really afraid of death and, and knows that it's, it's approaching. But 1826 was a special year. It marked the 50th anniversary of the adoption of the Declaration of Independence, which we all know Jefferson drafted. They go on vacation together, basically. They travel through English gardens, and the Adamses and Jefferson become very close friends. But then, of course, politics divides the friendship pretty irrevocably at the time. So they come back to the United States. And I think one of the things that sometimes we, we lose sight of is we, we think of the Founding Fathers as this kind of monolithic group that all thought the same things about what this country should become and, and what our government should look like. But of course, once the revolution was over and once the Constitution was ratified, many of the Founding Fathers who were on the same side in the revolution ended up being on completely different sides uh, in the political discourse of our country. And, and that's certainly true of Adams and Jefferson. And it was those differing views of government and its function that would tear them apart. They stand against each other for president twice. Pretty nasty campaigns for president. A lot of, you know, <laughs> negative ads, you could say, to use our modern parlance. A lot of uh, things that are said about both of them. And and they kind of have this huge falling out over it. This was the late 1790s, and the 12th Amendment wasn't a thing yet, meaning in a presidential election, whoever came in second place became vice president. Thomas Jefferson in 1796 comes in second place to John Adams. So despite the fact that they are political enemies at this point, uh, Adams becomes president, Jefferson becomes vice president. That would be, you know, the equivalent today of having President Donald Trump and Vice President Hillary Clinton. I think we all know how that would go. But Jefferson got another chance. There's a rematch in 1800. Uh, of course, this time Jefferson is successful and wins. Uh, and when he's inaugurated president, uh, John Adams, the outgoing president, doesn't even actually stay for the inauguration. He leaves town that morning. And they don't speak for more than a decade. The pair would make amends before their deaths on July 4th, 1826. Starts in 1812. Uh, another uh, founding father, Benjamin Rush, works behind the scenes writing letters to both Jefferson and Adams trying to repair their relationship. And in 1812, uh, John Adams picks up his pen and writes a letter to Jefferson here at Monticello. Uh, and that letter sparks this amazing correspondence that's going to continue for the final 14 years of their lives, where Adams and Jefferson kind of reacquaint themselves and become kind of pen pals and friends. A friendship that was on the mind of John Adams as he was dying. His final words recorded by his family were, Thomas Jefferson still survives. Of course, would have been incorrect at the time. News doesn't travel that fast, but he said it just a few hours after Jefferson had passed away. So the second and third presidents of the United States died on the same day, just hours apart. But fate, destiny, whatever you want to call it, 
wasn't done yet. Just a, a few years later, of course, James Monroe, the fifth president of the United States, also ends up dying on July 4th. It was the nation's birthday five years after Jefferson and Adams' deaths. July 4th, 1831. Monroe, the Westmoreland County, Virginia native, died in New York City. His body was actually disinterred from its resting place in the Big Apple and relocated to Hollywood Cemetery in Richmond in 1858. So the second, third, and fifth presidents died on the same day. What about the nation's fourth leader? I have to think that James Madison, as the 4th of July approached every year, was was probably nervous. He dies uh, at the end of June. June 28, 1836, to be exact. Six days shy. Story is told that his doctor offered him medicine to allow him to last to the 4th of July, which he he declined. So as you celebrate the nation's birthday on July 4th this year, take a moment between your next burger or beer to remember those early presidents who helped build what we now call the United States. Three of the first five taking their final breath on the same day we celebrate our independence. This podcast is recorded by WWBT NBC 12 in Richmond, Virginia. Thank you, Digital Director Kate Albright, for these spirited audio mixes. And Executive Producer Colton Weekly, who wishes he was Mike Gorman's best friend. Speaking of Mike, thank you for the enthusiastic storytelling, as well as to Steve Light from Monticello. There's a 4th of July celebration and naturalization ceremony every year at Monticello. You should check it out. Next week on Episode 6. I couldn't have had a better role model at 9 years of age. I couldn't have had a better role model at 49 years of age. An athlete on the court. A civil rights hero off. That relationship lasted right up to the day that he died. The life and legacy of Arthur Ashe. Also, the funeral of a larger-than-life Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court. Then we say, VCU, get your asphalt off our people. And a look back at the battle to uncover a slave burial ground in Richmond. For Richmond, race has been a traumatic experience and three soldiers killed in a tank during World War II, finally honored. We will not forget and we will never forget those sacrifices. If you like this podcast, please support local journalism. You can find stories like this from a little more recent history at NBC12.com. And if you don't mind, rate and review us so others will find us. If you have any questions or ideas, email us at howwegothere at NBC12.com. We'll be back in your life next Monday.